Today we turn together in the Word of God to Matthew 13, and you'll notice that we read verses 24 to 30 and then 36 to 43. There's a number of extra resources on pages 5 and 6 because this is a very dense, challenging parable. Please don't read them now. (laughs) Please take them and hopefully benefit from them later on today or this week. Hear now the word of God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Why does evil persist? Why is there so much sin in the world and hypocrisy in the church? Jesus has lived. He has died. He is risen. He is ascended. He is reigning. He is returning. Why so much evil? The parables of Jesus, and there are seven of them in Matthew 13, help to explain this. God is not silent. Jesus reminds us here of satanic opposition, of an enemy that is fiercely opposed to the work of God. And the warning here should not surprise us because the theme is of an ultimate separation between God's people, the seed of the woman, and those who belong to Satan. In the midst of this opposition, however, Christ is gathering, building, and purifying his church. There is great hope in this parable. There is encouragement here. The gates of hell will not prevail 
against it. First, we see the interpretation of this parable. The word parable, do you remember, kids, means, okay, something is going to be explained alongside something else. It is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It draws us into itself. It's telling us as disciples, Jesus is training you for kingdom living, even as the same parable is confirming judgment where it's resisted. One of the themes of Matthew and the whole Bible is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus says many of the parables are like, including this one here. What does that mean? Well, God's kingdom is his rule, authority, and reign. In a sense, his kingdom is all that he made because he reigns over it all. He is king. He sits on his throne in holiness. He is unchanging. He is from himself. He is eternal. And yet, there's a sense as well, and the Old Testament picked up on this, of a coming messianic kingdom, of a Savior who will come and usher in peace and deal with sin and injustice. And the book of Matthew is about that. John the Baptist and Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes as the Son of God in the flesh, as the Messiah, as the long-hoped-for Savior, as the Lord, as the King. And he's saying, okay, here is what my kingdom is like. Here's a guy who sows good seed in his field. Remember last week, the seed that was sown? This is picking up right on what follows. He goes to bed. But while he's asleep, an enemy comes deliberately, maliciously, and sows weed in the fields. This would actually happen in the ancient world, as R.C. Sproul says. Sometimes salt would be poured on the field by an enemy to destroy the crop. Or weeds would be planted to do the same. The enemy is malicious. It's not that the sower is lazy. The weeds are most certainly a plant called darnel, the commentators say, meaning it's something that looks a lot like wheat. You can't tell the difference in the early stages as the plants are growing up. Maybe you see something similar with your own plants. Kids, have you planted tomatoes or berries or zucchini? And maybe now as the summer's going on, the weeds are growing up along with them. And you've got to be careful not to pull the whole thing out when you take the weed out. That's what's being said here. The servants want to rip up the weeds, throw them into the fire, and the master says, no, you better not do that because if you do that now, the wheat will be harmed. What does this mean? In many ways, it's very straightforward. Jesus tells us even. The sower, the master, is Christ himself, the Son of Man. The field is the world. The enemy is the devil. The good seed, the wheat, sons of Christ, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. The bad seed, unbelievers, belonging to the devil. Satan is scattering non-Christians among God's people. And this continues until the harvest, the judgment. Very straightforward. And yet, That's why there's so many resources here. 
solid biblical interpreters view this and interpret it a little differently. Even as the doctrine is the same in both interpretations, what is this parable actually saying? Well, the first view, the kingdom of God is being sown in the world. The devil is sowing his seed alongside to confound the presence of the kingdom of God and to disturb the growth of the kingdom. We see that, don't we? Unbelievers, alongside believers. You see that every day in the world we live in. That's very true. Is that the main point of the parable? Many people say yes. Others say, well, it's not not referring to that, meaning that's true, but is Jesus specifically drilling down here to talk about the church, where the church and the kingdom are so close? R.C. Sproul and others say yes. Why? Even though the field is the world, it is among the wheat that the weeds are sown. They're intertwined. They're closely connected. When the harvest comes, the weeds are removed out of what, does it say? The kingdom of the Son of Man. So it seems to indicate in this view that the parable is not just talking about the world in general, but in particular in the church. And we see this theologically very clearly, don't we? The church is not one-to-one identical with the kingdom, but the church visibly bears witness to the kingdom of God, to Christ and his rule and reign. Sproul says, the devil doesn't have to plant fresh weeds in the world. They're already out there. Satan is seeking to undermine the kingdom of God by planting weeds, loved ones, in the visible church. In this world, the church is a mixed multitude. Some who are true believers and some who profess to believe but aren't. The visible church, all those who say they're Christians. The invisible church, meaning known only to God. Those who are truly regenerate by the Holy Spirit. So in this sense, the parable is talking about the word that is proclaimed. From the world, the wheat and the weeds are called out externally by the preached word and constitute the visible church along with their children. Weeds look like the wheat, the darnel looks like the wheat, but they're not the wheat Not everyone who's in the visible church is in saving union with Christ by the Spirit. So the weeds are members of the visible church, but not the invisible church. And they're intertwined with believers, the wheat, who are members of both the visible church and the invisible church. Theologically, this is really important because there's a distinction between the external and internal belonging to the covenant of grace and the visible and invisible church. Judas is an example. Among the twelve, externally, visibly a part of Jesus' disciples, but not saved. The covenant community visibly is a mixed multitude. Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? There's many who will say, Lord, Lord, but I will say, depart from me. Many people in the world think they're Christians and aren't. How do you know the difference? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 
by the fruit. This is sobering because one man says, we tend to think, okay, the kingdom of Christ here will be triumphant and pure. But Jesus is painting a very different picture. Jesus is saying you should expect that there will be hypocrites in the visible church, that there will be false teachers arising from the visible church. He's warning us of this case because the devil is at work trying to plant them. 2 Corinthians 11. Satan is masquerading as an angel of light. And his servants are masquerading. They're pretending to be believers, but they're not. Don't be surprised, Jesus says, when the devil's people show up in different places. Don't be surprised when people abandon Christianity and say, I want nothing to do with it. Jesus here is warning us of this fact. Here's another application one man makes. He says, I've got a friend who's looking for the perfect church. He's always trying to find it. He tries here, and well, it's great until something offends him. And then he tries there, and it's great. And There are flaws in every church. Not to say there are not false churches. There are. Not to say that there are not more pure churches. There are. But there is no perfect church in this life. Emmaus Road Reformed Church is not a perfect church. We are justified yet sinners. If we are looking for utopia and perfection in this life, we're not looking for something Jesus said would happen. Our view of the church, if that is it, is higher than Jesus' view in this life. That's one application. Another one is we are not indifferent about sin. We are grieved when someone names the name of Christ and lives in unrepentant sin or denies the faith. But we cannot always distinguish between the wheat and the weeds in this age, Jesus is telling us. When the elders meet with people who join the church, it's a great joy. We want to hear, are you a Christian? What do you profess to believe about Christ? What difference does it make that you're a Christian in your life? Do you love the Lord? Do you love his people? The elders and I do not make a judgment about regeneration. We can't. That's known only to God. We hear credible professions of faith, and we hear it among each other. And it's one reason in the prayer meeting we're wanting to hear more going forward about how the Lord has brought you to faith in Christ. Drake shared with us a little last week. The weeds being treated like wheat doesn't make them wheat, nor does it hinder warning them of the danger of being weeds. Another application of this, church discipline. Maybe you've never seen it happen. Maybe you've seen it go horribly wrong. Church discipline is brought to bear when someone is involved in public, scandalous sin that defiles the name of Jesus. When there is a lack of repentance, there are stages, there is prayer, there is patience, there is pleading, there are warnings. But eventually, if the person is unrepentant, they are excommunicated, meaning excommune from the church, visibly. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, delivered to Satan so that even that would bring them to repentance. The goals of the discipline are loving. They are restorative. They are about the purity of the church, the restoration of the sinner, the glory of God. 
Why is church discipline necessary? Because in the visible church, there are undiscovered weeds among the weeds. There are Judases. But there are also Peters who have been ensnared in sin and are true believers and are living in sin, but God brings them back. He renews them to repentance as Jesus prayed for Peter. Peter, you will fall and I will pray for you and you will return and you will restore your brothers. If you're ensnared in a secret sin today, God's word says repent and come to Jesus for forgiveness. Where sin abounds, grace abundantly, superabounds. When a heinous sin becomes public, when there is the discipline of the church involved, we often see this, don't we? The temptation is for that person to flee from Christ, to abandon the church. So as a church at Emmaus Road, we are continually reminding ourselves, God has given us, 2 Corinthians 5, the ministry of reconciliation. Over and over again. If you're looking for a passage to memorize, go there, 2 Corinthians 5. The church is a place where sinners find redemption, where we are reminded of what Christ has done for us, who he is. Let's drill down more. Those are the interpretations. Secondly, let's see the enemy. Michael Reeves says, Since God created everything, how is it that God didn't create evil? Have you ever wondered that question? God is sovereign over all things. He is not the creator or author of evil. Evil exists simply because, as Reeves says, good and evil are not equal and opposite things. Good is an eternal reality found in God. Evil is a consequential lacking thing. Augustine, evil is not a thing, like a substance. It is a perversion. It is a lack of being. And in this particular part of this parable, Jesus is saying, here's where evil comes from. When you look at the world around you, the culture we live in, we are tempted to just look at it in terms of what we see around us. But Jesus says, an enemy has done this. Did you catch that in the parable? An enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. Cosmic powers over this present darkness. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That doesn't mean that there aren't human interactions where there's evil. Of course there are. But it's saying, Ephesians 6, there's much more going on than we see. There is an enemy who is evil who is seeking to destroy the church. He is sinister and personal and supernatural. He is the devil. The world we live in right now is not the world as God made it before the fall. Sin has spoiled it. It has fallen. It is not what it one day will be when Christ returns. Satan is a created being. He was an angel. He rebelled. He's the first sinner. He's the instigator of all sin. He's a counterpart to the greatest of angels, Michael and Gabriel, but he is not a counterpart to God. God created him. He is, as Luther says, God's devil. 
He has rulers that fell with him, that are authorities and powers over this darkness. He is the God of this world. He is very powerful. He wants the glory. He hates the glory of God. And he wants to place counterfeit Christians among believers to hinder the work of God. In this sense, however you interpret the parable, he's doing this very thing, both in the world and in the church. Wherever the good seed is sown by Jesus, there's the devil to snatch it away like those birds last week. When Jesus is talking to Peter about going to the cross, Peter says, no, forbid it. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The enemy, Satan, was trying to keep Christ from dying for his people as a seed falling into the ground and then bringing an abundant harvest. The enemy is seeking to destroy us and your family. The enemy is seeking to get you to not believe the gospel and to get pastors to not preach the gospel. We're in a war. The entirety of the history of the world is this battle. It takes place when you become a Christian. You've been transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. The battle is not like an angel and a demon over your head like those cartoons. Ephesians 6 says it's in your everyday life and mine too. It's in your marriage where Satan wants you to hold a grudge, wants you to think everyone's looking at pornography, just do it, wants you to be jealous and hateful and cold-shouldered and not pray with your spouse and not read the Bible with your spouse and be bitter. It's going on right there. Satan's battlefield is among you as siblings, kids, wanting you to fight and say the worst things to each other and hold on to it. It's their kids with you and your mom and dad. Satan wants you not to forgive mom and dad, to keep a list of things they've done wrong to you, to bring them up against you, especially when you get older, to list them out and to say, you are this and you are that. Satan wants there to be no forgiveness, no repentance, no grace, no humility, no love in our homes, in our marriages, as we parent. He wants us as parents to fly off the handle in rage, to drive our kids away. He wants us as parents to be apathetic and not to discipline our children in love. He wants you at work to lie and cheat and scheme and steal. He wants you to deny Christ in every way. He wants to bring us down this is real in the world, in the church, in our homes. It's happening. But we need not be afraid. Satan's work is to entice us to sin, to inflict disease, to seduce us into error. When we sin, we are curved in on ourselves. When we sin, we are doing the devil's business, but it is our sin. The devil didn't make me do it. The question then is this, what should happen in the interim? What's being done about this? Third, God, are you asleep? Are your hands in your pockets, the psalm says? Are you aware of what's happening in the world and in the visible church? God, where are you? God, hear us. Don't you care? Can't you do anything about this? As Eric Alexander said, God's care is not inferior to ours. His wisdom is superior to ours. During the time between the seed being sown and the harvest, 
The servants say, let's go out and rip up those weeds and get them out of here. They are stinky weeds. They are smelly weeds. They are painful weeds. They are thorny weeds. Get them out. Sinclair Ferguson says, it's a laudable aspiration, but not a wise method of accomplishing it. We see the goal, but we don't have the wisdom of Christ. They're not pausing. They're not praying. They're trying to do what the enemy does to defeat the enemy in the same way the enemy's doing it in the method. So the answer is, do you want us to gather them? No. Wait. Patience. Not apathy, but prayerfully. There are weeds alongside the wheat in the visible church, and they will be there until Christ returns. When you are caring for the flock, build up the wheat. Don't focus so much on pulling the weeds that you might harm the wheat. That's one application. We're in a fallen world. The weeds are getting weedier. Evil is descending more and more into perversion and abomination. It's a Romans 1 world. The curse is becoming more evident. It's more distinctive. But the church is growing. The church is spreading. The gospel is going forth. God is not doing nothing. God is patient, Second Peter. People are scoffing. He's not going to come back. In the days of Noah, what are you doing, Noah? You're in the desert. You're spending a hundred years to build an ark. You're insane. Noah trusted God. People of God, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. The servants of the master were saying, judgment now. Bring it now. But fourth, today is the day of salvation. The day of judgment will come. Today is the day to flee to Christ. Satan wants to vandalize the work of the master, but it is the Son of God who plants the seed. The Son of Man, in particular, is the phrase, right out of Daniel 7. When the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man, who is our Lord Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, a kingdom. It will never be destroyed. The Son of Man plants his church. It bears fruit. The malice of Satan cannot derail it. The Son of Man is the Savior of sinners. All of your confidence for yourself and your family and the church is in Christ. All of it. Jesus is the hope of the nations. Jesus is the Redeemer of God's elect. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This parable reminds us, dear Christian, when you wonder how you'll make it, when you're oppressed by your sin and the world and the flesh, remember this. Satan says, look within. Try harder. God says that is the essence of the false gospel. When you need to know how will I endure whatever's coming this week and this month and the next year if the Lord should tarry, it is to remember this. It is to believe this, that you, Christian, are loved by God. If you forget this, you quit, you give up. So do pastors. 
Psalm 106. When the people of God in the Old Testament didn't remember God's steadfast love, they rebelled by the sea. You wake up fragmented, discontented, hurried, and tired. Say to the Lord, help me remember today your steadfast love. Help me to be satisfied today and to sing today of your love for me. Help me remember Zephaniah 3. The Lord God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. Help me to remember that, God. Help me to remember Zephaniah 3 again, that God rejoices over you, Christian, with gladness. Do you know that? God doesn't look upon you today in your sin and harshly beat you up. You are in Christ. The triune God of the universe rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you by his love. He exalts over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17. Dear Christian, remember that. He is your steadfast love. He is our refuge. We're not individuals alone. We are together as the people of God, around you, brothers and sisters locked in arm, growing in wise love together. You say, but what if I feel like I'm failing? What if I'm worn out? What if all I can think about is my sin? What if I'm zeroed in on what someone did to offend me? What if I think I have nothing to offer God? Pray Psalm 119, 159. Give me life, O God, according to your steadfast love. Remember not my sins, but your steadfast love for me in Jesus. Remember that the parable teaches you have God as your Father. You are righteous in Christ, it says, verse 43. Not by yourself. But Christ earned that righteousness through his keeping of the law for you. He achieved it perfectly. His act of obedience is yours as you receive it by faith. Christ died on the cross in your place as your substitute, as your representative for you. Christ rose from the dead for you. Christ ascended to heaven for you. Christ is praying right now there for you. Christ is reigning there. This is God's field. Not the devil's field. This is my Father's world. And it's leading forth finally to the close of the age. The parable ends reminding us there will be a harvest time. God, give me patience. This day will come in God's timing. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. There are two eternal destinies. The wheat will be gathered into God's barn, and the weeds will be burned. The kingdom of God is the consummation. It is when God is all in all, 1 Corinthians 15. It is the new heaven and the new earth. It is when you dwell with the Lord forever. Godless people think all things are in their hands. You might wake up and look at the news and think, that seems to be right. But God is sovereign over all things. 
God is guiding all things to the day he has determined, the day of the return of Christ, the day of an infallible judgment. Why is God not doing anything about this evil? He has not yet come in judgment, but he will. We live every day in light of that final judgment, loved ones. We don't uproot the weeds. We don't take it into our hands. We trust that the Lord will, that the angels will come at the harvest. They will gather and bind and burn the weeds. They will remove everything that causes sin. It will be thrown into a fiery furnace. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Indignation at God and at each other. Endless torture of damned souls. Eyes will be opened. Hearts will not be softened. Vile anger. The reality of hell is far worse than we can imagine. It is a reality that will engulf everyone who is not in Christ. It is what we deserve, and the good news of the gospel is it is what Christ has borne for us. Jesus bore the wrath and hell of God for every one of his elect on the cross, bearing our condemnation, that we might be saved from God's just and holy wrath for communion with God who loves you, who has loved you before the foundation of the world. The angels will gather God's people. You are God's people. All of the tribes and tongues and nations who are the elect of God are God's people. It's a glorious thing. You will shine like the sun. There is great hope here, Christian. Satan will not win. Satan will be condemned to the lake of fire forever. Satan has been bound now by the work of Christ through his death and resurrection. And one day he will be destroyed. And on that day you will be radiant and beautiful and as breathtaking as the Son of God himself. Emmaus wrote, Live today in the assurance of the ultimate triumph of God. The world is evil. It has gone madly toward hell but it is not out of God's control. God has exalted his son to glory. The world will see God's kingly triumph publicly displayed. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Today is the day of the Lord gathering his elect through the preaching of the gospel. And nothing will triumph other than God himself. He is the king of all ages. Nothing will stop it. He has all of history in his hands. Every moment he is sovereign. Do not neglect his call. Do you have ears to hear? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Trust the Lord. Know that he loves you and he reigns. Pray and wait. Take courage, Emmaus wrote. Be strong in the Lord. Confront the world with the holiness of God. Rest in Christ and his finished work. Lift up your eyes to Jesus and rejoice in the Lord in glorious hope. For he is the King. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and